I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 67 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. After being attacked by Israel's religious leadership in an effort to discredit him, Jesus is ready to comment on their corruption, presenting a stark dichotomy of true and false leadership. When I was a teenager, I dabbled in the food industry. Uh, I worked at McDonald's, I worked at KFC, I worked at a Japanese restaurant called Yuko's, it was local, I worked at Wendy's, I worked at a southern place called Checkers that you don't have here, but trust me, it's probably for the best. Um, and those are just a few of the places. And yeah, there's Checkers, by the way, it's a drive through only kind of place. And I, like many people I'm sure, didn't love working at these places personally, so I didn't last long at any of them at all. Um, I worked at Checkers, for example, for four evenings. Oh, <laughs> oh you think that's funny? It gets worse. I worked at uh, McDonald's for two mornings. Um, I made it one shift at KFC. Uh, I even quit a local pizza place before I started. In the time that it took for the interview and the hire, I drove home and then called and said, I'm, I'm never coming to this place. Um, but I worked at Sonic for a whole month. Uh, that's right. Yes, thank you very much. Your applause are uh, gratefully received and appropriate. Um, and I, I should probably mention that it, I only worked the lunch rush, which was noon to two. That's why I lasted a month. But I was at Sonic the longest, uh, so it was like a career for me, you know, a huge season of my life. And there was a coworker there. Uh, let's call him Derek, because that was his name. Um, Derek was a grunt like me. Uh, I worked the grease pit or whatever <laughs> it was called. And then right behind me in the makeup of Sonic, uh, his back to my back was this gentleman, Derek, and he worked at the grill, I believe. But Derek, unlike me, was ambitious. He wanted to be a manager one day. He told me he um, had his designs on really climbing the corporate ladder at Sonic. He wanted to be a franchise owner. He wanted to become Mr. Sonic himself, for all I knew. So he behaved as if he ran the joint. Now, I didn't like being there, and I like being told what to do even less. So there was tension between Derek and my at my house on my landline telephone. He said, it's Derek from work. And I asked, why are you calling me Derek from work? I could hear the ambiance of Sonic in the background. He's calling me from Sonic. I didn't question uh, how he got the number or anything. Phone, phone numbers were an impersonal thing back then. You just look anyone up in the book and to call him. But why was he bothering me in particular? He said, I don't want you coming in late today, Porter. And this man's just a grunt. He works right across from me. I said, well, with all due respect, Derek, which was, I thought, none, um, doesn't really matter what you do or do not want from my schedule, does it? And I came in late just to spite him. Um, it was a spike tardy. Uh, <laughs> what's the worst that could happen? I thought, they fire me, please. Anyway, most of you have known, and by, and by the way, I was like 16 at the time. Everyone who's judging me silently in this story, I've hopefully come a long way since then. Most of you have known a Derek-type person, I wager, or you know one now, or you are one yourself. Um, now, it's a shortcoming of mine to be sure that I don't like being told what to do. It's a personality flaw. But the more common frustration one has with a, a Derek-type is less that they don't like being told what to do and more that a Derek type assumes that they have a certain amount of authority that they don't actually have. Now, at this point, 
the veil between my anecdote and the analogy that I eventually plan to make with it. It's probably getting pretty thin, but here's the thing. Tonight's teaching has a lot of information and not a lot of humor, so we needed a little bit of levity to start things off. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew 22, the first book in the New Testament. Now, where we've left off, Jesus has spent a few years causing trouble all over the empire. He's going around telling first century Jews that the moment that they've all been awaiting for centuries is finally here. God's kingdom is arriving in and through him. Jesus of Nazareth. And to show that this is actually the case, he's healing the sick, he's healing paralyzed people, he's opening the eyes of the blind, he's opening the ears of the deaf, he's pronouncing forgiveness of sins, which is something only God is authorized to do, he's resuscitating dead people, weird, wild stuff. And people notice, especially the kind of people who actually experience the incredible stuff that he's doing. And they tend to say when they experience it, man, I'm pretty sure that this is the guy. This has to be God's promised king, the Messiah, which is a word that means anointed one. And it all culminates when Jesus tells his disciples, look, you know I'm the Messiah, I know I'm the Messiah, so we're heading into Jerusalem where I will be killed. But Jesus says lots of weird things, so they don't take him at face value. It must be a metaphor or something. So they head into this crowded city. People recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. They hosanna him into the city with palm branches. It's the whole thing. And Jesus isn't denying that he's the king. He isn't keeping it quiet, which is something he was doing up until this point. So naturally, Israel's religious and political leaders get upset. This Jesus guy is a nobody from nowhere. He's not keeping the rules exactly the way they say one should keep the rules. He's not one of them. He can't possibly be Israel's promised king. So to kind of take him down, they launch a theological attack on Jesus, wanting to discredit him in front of all his followers, stump him so that he will admit something controversial or divisive, and they will finally spread out and thin his following. But none of it works. It backfires, actually. Jesus effortlessly evades their theological traps. He exposes their hypocrisy in the process. Now, where we're picking up this evening, we're still in the middle of one of these debates, and now Jesus has questions of his own. You guys ready to get into it? Yeah. Great, thank you. Look down at Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, so they're still in the middle of this debate, Jesus asked them, verse 42, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now, on the surface... It actually seems like something of a dull question by comparison. If you recall, the questions thrown at Jesus were about controversial things like paying taxes to the oppressor, about how marriage works after people die and are resurrected from the dead, about the most important command in the Hebrew scriptures, really, really dense questions. And Jesus dismantled each of these really complex, loaded questions with masterful precision. Now it's his turn, and he asks them, whose son the Messiah is? Well, everyone knows whose son the Messiah is, which is why verse 42 goes on, the son of David. They replied immediately, which is the obvious answer. Jewish people believe that the coming anointed king would descend from the line of King David. But Jesus goes on in verse, verse 43, he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him the Messiah, Lord? For he says, Yahweh said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Okay, 
Sounds pretty weird, but there is a lot here. Jesus is quoting verbatim from a psalm written by David. It's Psalm 110, verse 1 to be exact. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. And notice, to preface this psalm, Jesus describes it as, and I quote, David speaking by the Spirit, which is fascinating. In one small phrase, Jesus encapsulates a dense theology of how the Bible actually works. It's David talking. There's a very human author, in other words, but the human author is speaking by the Spirit. In his commentary on this passage, scholar Frederick Dale Bruner writes, The Psalms, on the one hand, are not merely the repository of David or Israel's religious genius, nor, on the other hand, are the Psalms merely spirit writing through an entranced, sternographic David, like he went into a trance and couldn't help what he was writing. Nowhere else... Does the Holy Spirit speak as dependably to us as in the human but inspired authors of the Holy Scripture? Now, if you've been to Van City one or two times, you've probably noticed that we talk quite a bit about the Holy Spirit. We believe that God's Spirit, who in the New Testament is is also called the Spirit of Jesus, is how Jesus is with us now. That the Spirit is active and alive. He's a person, not a force, so He's personal. He speaks by direct deposit into our mind's eye, imagination, that He heals people, He encourages us and convicts us. And that's why every single week we deliberately plan to seek God's Spirit, to ask Him questions and to listen to Him. Every Sunday at 345, a bunch of us meet to ask God if there's anything specific he wants to say or do at the evening's gathering. You're all invited to that, by the way, if you're new to what we call listening prayer, which is just asking God's question, asking God questions and waiting to see what he says. That's a great place to learn and to practice in a relaxed, kind of down-to-earth environment. Then, during the actual gathering, we listen some more. Katie, who's the deacon of our prayer team, is going to be up here in a few minutes when I'm done to talk about what we think the Spirit might be up to this evening. It happens every single week. But we spend even more time studying the Scriptures. Why? Because though we absolutely believe that the Spirit speaks and acts today, that He's dynamic, alive, doing things, me telling you what I think God's Spirit is saying isn't exactly authoritative. Sometimes it could be if it's perfectly consistent with the Scriptures and not at all subjective, like God says that He loves you or some such thing. That's always true no matter when or who says it. And honestly, a lot of times the Spirit speaking says things kind of like that. But other times it's something more like, I kind of feel like God's saying that you need to move beyond something that happened to you when you were six years old that's affecting a big decision in your job today. You have to figure out whether that's accurate or not and how much of it is accurate and how much of it's kind of cloudy. You make sure, you test it, you pray through it some more, you ask other people, and then you decide whether or not it might be God actually talking to you. But the scriptures, though they do require our attention, absolutely thoughtfulness, study, nuance, all that interpretation, the scriptures do contain God's authoritative voice and you don't have to test whether or not it's actually true. We do the hard work of interpreting it, yes, but we know that it's true. I think Bruner is right. Nowhere else does the Holy Spirit speak as dependably to us as in the human but inspired authors of the Scriptures. 
That still requires thoughtful reading, not just black and white literalism, not just take it all at face value, which is why the next practice that we're about to have coming up after Easter is all about how to read the Bible. Now, all of that sounds like a huge tangent that I just went off into the weeds, but it's actually crucial in understanding Jesus' argument here. He's appealing to the voice of God through the voice of David, through the voice of the scriptures. Again, this text is from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This simple little song lyric, actually, from David is absolutely riddled with theological complexities. What the heck is going on in this thing? Look at the first dang line, the Lord. And all caps Lord in your Old Testament, if you didn't know, is God's proper name, Yahweh. Of course, devout Jews dare not speak God's proper name aloud, nor would they actually read it in their minds as Yahweh. They would replace it instead with Lord, or the actual word is Adonai. Now, Adonai means my Lord. It's a word used to describe a master or a king, someone in authority. Problem is, the same exact word shows up again in the same line. Adonai says to my Lord. Now, that second Lord is an actual Adonai. But at this point, we've made the line, Adonai says to Adonai in the Hebrew reading, or Kyrios says to Kyrios in Greek, or the Lord says to my Lord in English. You guys still with me? Great, thank you. Remember, in context, this is King David writing. So also remember that Adonai or Kyrios or Lord often describes a king. So it's getting really complicated. The king is writing, the king says to my king. What? Your king? David, you are the king. And even if you weren't, who the heck are these other two kings? One of them we know is Yahweh, which makes plenty of sense. He is a king. God is king. But who in the world is the other Lord? And why in the world is Yahweh, the creator God, referring to someone else as master or king through the spirit, through David? Jesus has already put his cards on the table. He says, who's the Messiah? And then he quotes this verse. The second Lord is Israel's anointed king. It's the Messiah, whom, again, everyone believed would be descended from David's line. Okay, so follow this thread. In first century Judaism, a son was never his father's superior. But David, inspired by God's spirit, refers to his descendant, as Lord, Adonai, or King, and claims that Yahweh does the same thing. In fact, Yahweh says that the coming king will be invited by Yahweh to sit at his right hand, not to bow before Yahweh, not to kneel at Yahweh's feet, but the king will be given a seat of primacy, arguably a a seat of equality with the creator God himself. And in this shared seat of authority, God will conquer the Messiah's enemies. He will, in the psalmist language, put them under the Messiah's feet. This verse was so beloved by the first disciples of Jesus that it became the most frequently cited or alluded to Old Testament passage in the New Testament, some 37 times. Because in light of what Jesus says here, the previous understanding of the Messiah as a military hero was eventually forsaken in favor of a nonviolent Messiah who conquers his enemies with love. N.T. Wright put it this way. He said, if David's son is also David's master, then the warlike Davidic Messiah of popular Jewish imagination will be, after all, 
one who will bring the saving, healing rule of this creator God to the whole world. And the enemies that he will put under his feet, as Psalm 110 insists, will not be the nationalist enemies of an ethnic people of God, but the ultimate enemies of the whole human race, and indeed the whole world, sin itself and death which it brings." So the imagery of enemies as a footstool being put under the Messiah's feet is from the book of Joshua, and it promises that God's victory would one day be complete in the anointed king who shockingly sits at Yahweh's right hand and is referred to as Lord by God and by King David. So Jesus poses this question in verse 45, if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Jesus is asking a question that has complicated implications. If David is willing to refer to his descendant as Lord, something that never happened in first century Jewish culture, he must be more than just David's descendant. Now, Jesus doesn't intend to deny or rebut the consensus understanding that the Messiah would descend from David. In fact, the first verse of Matthew's gospel begins a genealogy that specifically demonstrates how Jesus is descended from David. But Jesus is a master teacher. He intends to provoke his audience and force them to wonder at the suggestion that the Messiah might be more than simply a descendant of David. So Jesus is saying, look at the text. It's written by David himself. It's inspired by God. We all know that the Messiah is a son of David. But why do David and Yahweh call him Lord? The Messiah must be more than everyone is expecting. Now, in hindsight, disciples of Jesus would come to understand Jesus' meaning very plainly. Jesus was descended from David, human, but he was more than that. He was David's Lord, the creator God himself, incarnated in flesh and blood, and therefore equal with and at the right hand of the Father. But here, when Jesus is actually saying it to the religious leaders, all that is not clear. It's kind of a a provocative inference. And no one knows what to say. Look at verse 46. No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is humiliating, actually. Remember, at this point in the story, Israel's religious leaders have come to Jesus intent on exposing him as inept. So they throw complicated theological and socio-political questions at him. They want to specifically embarrass him, discredit him. And Jesus maneuvers through each trap with clinical efficiency before he poses for them what seems like the easiest, most simple question, and at the end of the exchange, Israel's Bible experts can't interpret fundamental texts about the Messiah, which would be humiliating for them and in front of everyone, which leads us to believe that there's a time and a place to engage dialogue and debate with thoughtful accommodation, with gentleness, with allowance even. I would argue that that's most of the time. And as Jesus demonstrates, there is a time and a place albeit a rare one, to expose hypocrisy and false teaching for what it is so that it can be brought to ruin. And there's more of it coming. Let's read a bit more. You guys okay? Great, thanks. The next bit is very troubling. (laughs) The 23rd chapter of Matthew's gospel is likely the most disturbing and disliked by scholars and commentators. Every single uh, source that I read throughout the week, they were like, we hate this next bit. Um, And the reason is, quite frankly, that Jesus sounds very mean. Now, to be clear, I don't believe that Jesus is mean. In Matthew 23, he's beginning something often described as the Sermon of Seven Woes. 
which sounds like a death metal album or something. So he starts by highlighting the wide dichotomy between false leaders and true leaders. And then he proceeds to pronounce woe on Israel's leadership. Seven varieties of woe. Now, I've had a fair share of woe pronounced on me in my day. And if I'm being honest, I've pronounced a bit of woe myself. But this is intense stuff. When I was studying it this week, I just kept thinking, whoa. (laughs) Oh, man. I could hardly hold it in. Thank you. Yeah. I was looking forward to that all week. Thanks. So let's read it. Let's start it anyway. (laughs) Chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. That sounds weird, right, after all this fighting with these guys? Meaning, we think, inasmuch as these religious leaders actually teach the scriptures, you are obligated to listen to them. It's funny to me that uh, biblical fundamentalists love to argue something like, uh, all you need is the Bible, you know, as if scholarship and seminaries get Christians lost in the weeds or something like that. But Jesus believes that someone has to interpret and teach the scriptures. And the truth of the scriptures is just the truth, even if it comes from flawed people and problematic teachers. Now, the next bit feels weird, given that it's me saying it, but it's where my study led, so here we go. In Jesus' recognition of Bible teachers, Bruner notes that... These two verses in Matthew direct the church to respect her office holders as well, to listen for the truth of Scripture and sacrament in those called to bring that truth, and to give those who occupy the church's chairs of interpretation a fair and full hearing. Hearing teachers only critically is unfair. Hearing teachers only receptively is unwise. Now, personally... I'm not interested in invoking Bible scholars to defend my position as a leader of the church. It probably wouldn't work anyway. So instead, let me tell you a story about another leader at another church. True story. I don't come from a long line of pastors. Uh, No one in my family that I know have worked at a church or anything like that. My vocational background is in writing and music. So I didn't get into the Bible teaching game for obvious reasons. Um, I discovered that Bible teaching and theology embellished my love of God. I was enamored with the medium. I deeply admired those who did it really well. So before planting Van City, I was at another church, and the teacher there was both uh, my mentor and a good friend of mine. And I knew enough about this fellow that, um, though obviously uh, and admittedly imperfect, that he put hours upon hours into studying and crafting every single sermon every single Sunday. Um, He had gone to graduate school. He used his education to navigate stacks of books and condense all that research and learning into a teaching nearly every single week uh, into a half-hour, 45-minute sermon. I was uh, really impressed by it and really appreciative of it. But I would watch people wander in, give kind of half of their attention, maybe 75% of of their attention to the teaching, and after it was over, kind of shrug and say, nah, I don't think so. Uh, this part was wrong, this part was wrong, let's go eat. And I would say, well, you know, hold on, this, this dude wasn't up there freestyling, you know, this, or doing spoken word or something. This, let's at least hear it and consider it thoughtfully. I'm not saying it's all dead on, but it might, you know, there might be something there. And they'd be like, nah. Um, now, I, of all people, know firsthand that Bible teachers can be very wrong. 
and are not to be received without discernment and a thoughtful, even a critical consideration. But I also know firsthand that teaching the Bible and theology is no easy task. And these hasty critics of my friend, I would ask them, well, wait, let's not dismiss this teaching outright. Let's consider it carefully, especially if it was something controversial or divisive, whatever it might be, something that challenged the way that we saw things. Let's think and pray about it. Let's give it time to permeate us. Because even when the teacher is off, even when the teaching itself is partly off, there still might be truth in there. Now, that same friend and mentor taught me something that I'll tell you guys now. I think, this is me speaking, I think that on most of my best days, I'm about 98% right in theology and teaching of the Bible. I take it very seriously. I work really hard. Uh, I try to keep learning all the time. Even so, I'm likely at least somewhere in the vicinity of 2% way off. Um, and I don't know what that 2% might, might be. <laughs> that is why Bruner argues that hearing teachers only critically is unfair. The people who go, nah, I don't think this, I don't think this, guard up all the time. Everything is wrong until proven that it isn't. Um, that's unfair. But hearing teachers only receptively, oh my gosh, everything this person says is amazing, that's unwise. You have to exercise some level of discernment. And I think that Jesus agrees because even though he's about to have some of his most harsh critiques of the religious leaders yet, he's had a lot of uh, harsh things to say already, he reminds his audience that inasmuch as they teach the Bible, be careful to listen to what they say and to obey what they say. And then he goes on in verse 3, but... Do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Which is serious stuff. But notice, Jesus acknowledges that they do, at least to some extent, teach the Bible. They just fail in the crucial element of actually putting it into practice. And it's worse than that. Verse 4, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So even if you teach the words of God with some accuracy, it can be a lot to handle. To be sure, it's not the religious leader's job to kind of pander to their audience, nor is it their job to work out their audience's obedience for them. This is about the way that they teach. Even if what they say is true, they present it with such cold rigidity that even the truth becomes a heavy and burdensome load rather than a difficult but beautiful invitation to freedom. They teach the hard truth of God, but they do not lift a finger to carry it themselves. Verse 5, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. If you're like, what are those? Um, the Pharisees took verses like this one from Exodus 13. Uh, the observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law... Um, the Pharisees took uh, verses like this literally. So a phylactery, if you're wondering, is a little wooden box on leather cords that the Pharisees would tie on their heads and on their arms. And inside the boxes were little parchments scrawled onto which were passages from the Torah. But Jesus says that it's all an act. It's theatrical. It's phony. 
The Torah also commanded blue and white tassels on the four corners of a rabbi's robe as a kind of symbolic reminder of God's law. But these guys have made the said tassels longer and more pronounced as a gesture of their religious superiority. And Jesus is not impressed. Verse 6, they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Jesus is not fond of one seeking positions of and recognition of greatness. Some of his sharpest warnings and rebukes of both his disciples and the religious leaders have to do with the desire for greatness. And Jesus, remember, is God becoming a limited, fragile human being. He knows what it means to embody lowliness at the expense of greatness. And trust me, this kind of uh, religious elbow rubbing is uh, as alive and well today as it has ever been in celebrity pastor culture and megachurch infamy embellished by Instagram and image curation. The lure of phony greatness is a pervasive evil. Do not let it draw you in, Jesus warns. He goes on in verse 8. You, he says to his disciples, are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. Now notice, Jesus does not say that no, one should, uh, not sh that no one should be a teacher, nor does he suggest that there should be no structure of leadership in the church, given that the New Testament goes on to specifically set up offices of leadership and authority in the church. What Jesus is condemning is the particular Pharisaical, Pharisaical tendency to seek titles for the sense of superiority they lend the one who bears them. Uh, our culture is so rem far removed from first century Judaism in that being a pastor or really being a teacher at all doesn't really get you the seat of honor everywhere you go or anywhere you go. So in this sense and in our context, it would be a bit more like having PhD after your last name or a verified check beside your social media handle or tens of thousands of followers or, you know, like credentials, like acclaimed author or prolific whatever in the way that you're introduced by people. They're not in and of themselves bad things, but Jesus is saying, don't be suckered in by the vanity of these things. And he goes on in verse 9, do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Again, not a literal command. My kids are fine to call me dad. Sometimes they say father because they're trying words out. I'm like, that's weird. Um, but I don't think Jesus minds the, the title in and of itself. He's actually referring to religious leaders being referred to as father anyway. He's talking about an honorary um, political title of superiority that complicates our allegiance to God. So it'd actually be more like president so-and-so or pope so-and-so. Remember, the Pharisees weren't just Israel's religious leaders. They were their political leaders as well. You can see the thread here. Same idea in verse 10. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah, and his conclusion is trademark Jesus. Verse 11, the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is true of leaders and non-leaders, the famous and the ordinary, those who um, are honored and those who are overlooked. Disciples of Jesus carry out their discipleship always in gentle humility. Gentle humility is the natural outworking of one's awareness of where they are in the ecosystem of God's leadership and authority. 
leaders, teachers, fathers, none of these things are inherently bad. In fact, they're all actually good things. The New Testament goes on to claim that whenever a man or woman wants to help lead the church, they desire a noble task in the language of the scriptures. The scriptures, the Old and New Testament, are replete with instructions for how one leads and teaches well, be they parents or theologians or people in authority, people with influence. But in Jesus' mind, all of these positions and all this authority is to be conducted and maintained in total reverent submission to his greater teaching and his greater authority. When one operates with this as a presupposition, I am not in the ultimate place of authority, Jesus is. When one operates with that as a baseline disposition, they can carry out leadership and authority with gentle humility because they realize that ultimately they are also submitted to a master. So, to end tonight, let's sit with two uncomfortable truths from Jesus' teaching in this text. The first is how to spot fake leaders, hypocrites, phonies. It's actually a pretty simple list. The first thing is that they don't actually do what they teach other people to do. The second is that they love and chase after recognition and acclaim. They're showy suckers for praise. They want to be recognized for their purported spirituality, their status, their accomplishments. And finally, they do not conduct, conduct themselves as humble servants. Now, I wish it went without saying, but I've learned over the years that it does not and that it bears repeating. Aside from Jesus... Even our best, most admirable uh, leaders were and are wildly imperfect. When you set them on pedestals of unrealistic expectations, those pedestals will crumble, and the leader, the mentor, the role model, the parent, whoever it was, will fall. It is in our broken world to be expected. We are to remember this forgive one another, have patience with one another, award one another grace, just as God has done with us. But there is a standard for disciples of Jesus. Now notice I said disciples of Jesus rather than leaders only. I constantly hear well-meaning disciples of Jesus dismiss themselves from certain expectations by saying something like, well, I'm glad I'm not a pastor, I'm not a pastor, or I'm not a leader personally, or I don't want any leadership in the church because I don't want to be held to this or that standard. And while it's true that there are certain unique qualities to what Jesus and the New Testament expect from those who teach the Bible and lead the church, remember, Jesus concludes this teaching by saying to his disciples, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whether you lead a church or you just show up to one on Sunday, if you are a disciple of Jesus, these standards and warnings apply to you. Hold your leaders to these standards. Hold yourself to them as well. You and I are to practice consistency between what we claim to believe and how we actually legitimize those beliefs in our day-to-day -day lifestyle, our habits, what we say, how we spend and give money, our ambition, our vocations and career, the way that we raise our families and conduct friendships uh, with focused discipline and purpose how we present ourselves to others, how we care for others, how we think, how we pray, how we learn, how we operate in community. And the reason why, which is the second uncomfortable truth in tonight's text, is that we do all of this because Jesus is the king and we are not. He is our master, our teacher, our Lord. He tells us what to do, not the other way around. If we claim to follow Jesus then our most personal, 
private, important, and seemingly innocuous life decisions are to be carried out according to the teachings of Jesus, meaning your career decisions, your vocation, career, your plans for the future, your plans for your marriage or your singleness, your plans for your family and friends, how to raise children, how you seek and maintain health in your body and your mind, how you navigate suffering and trauma, where you spend your money and why, your relationships, your daily rhythms, what you eat, what you say, how you think, all of that unfolds under the good and gracious kingship of Jesus. And there's a counterintuitive truth behind something that seems heavy and burdensome, and it's this. All of that is good news, not bad news. We are, in a sense, like children, uh, experts argue that kids who are not clearly and consistently disciplined often develop social and emotional issues later in life because they spend much of their childhood terrified, meaning the parents who say, oh, we can't correct our kid because it hurts their feelings or we can't tell them what to do, they just get so upset, they have a meltdown, whatever it might be. These kids are put in a horrifying position because they realize that their parents are not actually in control. And that's bad news when you are small and helpless. And all the experts argue that kids can intuit this, which is fascinating, though they can't articulate it. So when we were small, we wanted, we needed to know that our parents had more authority than we did, that we can't tell them what to do, that they knew what they were doing, that they were doing something trustworthy, and that we weren't the ones driving because we don't know how to drive. In tonight's text... Jesus creates this stark word picture of religious leaders piling up burdens on the back of the weak and the weary. But earlier in the story, if you remember, Jesus described a very different kind of possibility for his disciples. It was an invitation. He said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is why Jesus' warning against Israel's religious leadership is so serious, not just to embarrass them and destroy them with his words, but to rescue his disciples from the backbreaking burden, the hypocrisy, the lies, the emptiness of religious duty. Under Jesus' kind of generous authority, it's not so much that we must relinquish our control to our master, so much as it is we get to entrust our lives to a good shepherd. We are like helpless children. We're the sheep. The authority of Jesus is not cruel or dehumanizing. It is how we find our humanity. Jesus' authority doesn't restrict our freedom. It's how we experience freedom at all, real freedom, and it's not easy. He's very open about that. It's like a narrow road. It's difficult. There is a yoke. There is a burden. But it is, under the lordship of Jesus, easy somehow and light and somehow restful. And in carrying them, we don't just find rest, but rest for our souls. Jesus is the only teacher, the only master, the only Lord who actually offers such a thing at all. May those of us who claim to follow him, leaders or less so, remember this and rest well in the remembering. Let's pray and invite God's spirit to come and speak and empower us to follow Jesus well. Thanks for listening to Van City. 
You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.